Welcome back to our study of 1 Kings. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8 this time. 1 Kings chapter 8, we're looking at verses 12 to 30. But before we do that, I just want to say real quick how much I appreciate how many of you have been interested in this study of 1 Kings and have told me how much you enjoy it. And I'm so grateful for that. So grateful the Lord is using that to bless you. So whether you're watching the video or listening on the podcast, I'm so grateful that you're here and I hope that you'll uh, continue to enjoy these studies and also share them with your friends. So let's dig into 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look starting in verse 12 where it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, I mentioned before that 1 Kings chapter 8 is a rich chapter. That's part of why we're taking our time working through this chapter. And here we see one of these rich passages. First, in verse 12, Solomon um, references the fact that God dwells in thick darkness. Now, this doesn't seem to be a quote, per se, from any particular place, but it, it seems to recall the events of of um, the Exodus and Mount Sinai. Particularly what I mean there is um, when God came to meet his people on Mount Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt at the Exodus. The Bible tells us in Exodus 19 verse 9 that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And so God remember, came on Mount Sinai and there was thunder and lightning and clouds and whatnot. And then after he spoke the Ten Commandments to them, Exodus 20, 21 says, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So that seems to be the event that Solomon is referring to. Deuteronomy 5 uh, describes the events that way as well, where there's this thick darkness um, associated with God's coming onto Mount Sinai and speaking to Israel. Uh, In Psalm 18, where that event is described in poetic terms, uh, we're told thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. And then Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice, justice are the foundation of his throne. So God dwells in this thick darkness, in this mysterious, in some ways frightening, um, uh, place um, where people are are not supposed to approach without proper uh, permission and, and whatnot. Only, only Moses was allowed to approach God on the mountain and, and only when God told him to. And so God is uh, emphasizing his, what we call his transcendence, his otherness, his holiness, his greatness, uh, the fact that he is the creator, that he is God and that we are not in the way that he appeared to Israel. And so Solomon is reckoning with that. Here he's, he's just finished 
completing the tabernacle, or excuse me, the temple, um, which replaces the tabernacle, and they've just put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle uh, there in um, the last few verses we covered last time in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, so on. Um, and when the tabernacle was placed in the Holy of Holies, the glorious presence of God, the cloud of God's presence filled the tabernacle and so Solomon, um, again, is reckoning with the fact that he's built this house for this awesome, holy, transcendent God. And so he says, You've, you uh, have said that you would dwell in thick darkness. But then he says in verse 13, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So can the God who came in such terrifying power on Mount Sinai to speak to the nation of Israel. Can that God dwell in this house that Solomon has made? Yes, it's an exalted house. It's a beautiful, glorious, wonderful house, but it's still a house. And in comparison with God, it is a dinky little thing. So can God dwell there? That's the reason why Solomon has built it, for God to dwell there. That's the reason why God told Moses to have Israel build him a tabernacle so that he could dwell with them in, uh, in their midst there. So in one sense, of course, the answer is yes, of course, God can and will dwell in the temple as he dwelt in the tabernacle. That was the reason why the cloud of his glorious presence came and filled the temple. But there's another sense in which surely Solomon must recognize that this house, as great as it is, cannot contain the Creator God. We'll come back to that. All right, whether or not Solomon knows that and has reckoned with that. We'll come back to that later. All right? So then uh, we go to verse 14, where Solomon begins to emphasize that God has kept his promise. This is a long section, uh, verse 14 to 26. It says, Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. So all these people, remember, they're there for the Feast of Booths, and they're also uh, have finished the temple, and, and Solomon is going to dedicate the temple. So there's all these people gathered there, and he blesses them, and he said, verse 15, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them up 
when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the main point there is that Solomon is emphasizing that God promised he would do this. He promised to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne and build him a house. And Solomon is saying, God is the one who's done this. The reason we have gathered here today for the dedication of this temple is that God has fulfilled by his hand the words that he spoke with his mouth. Now, it's also really interesting, there's sort of a conglomeration of Old Testament texts and stories that Solomon brings together here. And they're not all necessarily in order, and they're just sort of um, mashed together because it's such a part of Israel's history and and Solomon's history um, that he can just sort of weave them all together and expect us to, to pick up on uh, what they're referring to. So let, let me let me point out some of what I'm talking about. Um, so in verse 16, he says, "Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there." Um, that God speaking there. A part of that quote seems to go back to when David wanted to build a house uh, for the Lord in Second Samuel 7, and. God says something like, you know, since the day that I uh, brought the people out of Egypt, I've not had a house. I've dwelt in a tent. But then Solomon also brings in the fact that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God had said that he would pick a place in the promised land once Israel was settled. Remember, Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to Israel before they enter the promised land. Um, He said, that he would pick a place once they entered the promised land where that would be the central location for Israel's worship. No longer would people be worshiping hither and thither and yon, but there would be a central location where God would put his name and where his people would worship. And that is coming to its fullest fulfillment so far uh, now that Solomon has built a temple in the city of Jerusalem in the city, uh, at the city of David, and that the Ark of the Covenant has been brought there, and that God has filled that temple with His presence, signifying this is the place where God is going to dwell in the midst of His people. So now, uh, worship is being centralized for Israel in the city of Jerusalem. So He's bringing in Deuteronomy 12. Uh, He's also bringing in 1 Samuel 16, it seems, where at the end of verse 16, he says, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. 1 Samuel 16 is where God God sets apart uh, David, and he's anointed by Samuel to be the next king over Israel after Saul. And then, of course, he brings in uh, this story of David desiring to build a temple for the Lord in 2 Samuel 7, and God's promise to uh, David in the wake of that, that though David would not be allowed to build the house, that God would raise up one of David's sons to sit on his throne, um, to build the temple, and that his kingdom would be established forever. And so think about as the people of Israel are gathered there outside of this beautiful temple, probably unlike anything they've ever seen, and Solomon says, God did this. God promised my father that one of his sons would be seated on his throne, and here I am as king, that his son would build a temple for the Lord, and it's just been completed. We are here to dedicate it, and that the kingdom of David 
through His Son on His throne would be established forever. Is this kingdom going to last forever? Solomon on the throne, the temple built, the Lord at work, His presence in the temple. Is this the eternal kingdom? Is this going to last? I mean, just imagine the the, the, um, the charge and expectation um, that they'd be experiencing there. So um, he goes on to say, well, he says in verse 15 that God has kept his promise. Uh, he says another couple of times in verse 20 that God has fulfilled, um, kept his promise, fulfilled what he said he would do. Right? And then even in verse 21, he again brings the Exodus back in by saying, and I've provided a place for the Ark of the Covenant uh, where the, the tablets of the testimony that have the, the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses is written on there, and that's here in this house. So we're in continuity right, with that story that goes all the way back to Exodus as we are celebrating the Feast of Booths, dwelling in booths just as uh, the people of Israel dwelt in tents in the wilderness all those years, um, and now that ark has come to rest in the temple, which replaces the tabernacle. And then in verses 22 to 26, uh, Solomon basically reiterates those promises to David and prays to God and says, keep keeping those promises, right? So verse 22 says, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So let's just pause there and emphasize that Solomon begins his prayer with the uniqueness of God. There's no God like you. Not in heaven, not upon the earth. There's no God like you. You are a God who keeps covenant. You are a God who is faithful, who keeps steadfast love with your servants when they um, obey you, when they walk before you with all their heart, he says. All right, then verse 24, he says, You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. Again, in other words, you have kept the promise, now keep keeping the promise. Keep staying faithful to those words you spoke to David. And probably implied in there as well as keep the sons of David faithful to you so that we're fulfilling our part of uh, what you expect of us, our part of the covenant. All right, now in verse 27, we come back to this question of can God really dwell in this temple, can God really dwell in the midst of his people this way? And does Solomon really expect him to? Well, notice what he says, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's the question, right? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So Solomon recognizes that the house he has built cannot contain God. Though it is a 
dwelling place for God in a real sense, right? Though God, uh, his throne is over the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. But Solomon knows not even the heavens can contain God. God is the creator. The creator cannot be um, contained inside the creation. So if he can't even be contained in the heavens, he surely can't be contained in this little box in Jerusalem, so to speak. I mean, a glorious, God-honoring box, but compared to the, to the creation, it's just a little bitty house, right? Um, and Solomon recognizes that. So what's the point of the temple then? If God can't be contained in it, does he dwell in it in any real sense? Well, clearly he does, right? Because his the cloud of his presence has come to dwell in the tabernacle, assuming the temple, signifying that God does dwell there in a real sense, a limited sense, right? In, in the sense that um, God is not limited to this one place. Right? So it's not that he's contained there, but he does dwell there in a particular way. And then verse 28, he says, Yet, so even though you, don't, you can't be contained by this house, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So, um, the temple, though it can't contain God, it is still the real God-appointed center of Israel's worship. As uh, one scholar likes to say, the temple is the meeting place of heaven and earth, right? So this is where God and his people meet. So Solomon says, God, I want your eyes, I'm asking for your eyes to be on this temple day and night. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, the Psalms tell us. Um, he doesn't even have eyes and hands and mouth like uh, Solomon has been talking about. These are what we call anthropomorphisms, uh, where we ascribe human characteristics to a non human um, entity, uh, in this case, God, right? So we're describing God in human terms just so we can understand what we're talking about. God doesn't have eyes or eyelids, doesn't have a mouth, doesn't have hands, but he does see and he does speak and he does act. How else do we talk about that than with these anthropomorphic, these human terms, right? So he's saying, God, look toward this house day and night. Let your focus be here so that whenever we pray toward this place, because this is where you've directed our worship of you, you've directed it toward the temple. Come and bring your sacrifices to this temple. We're going to pray toward this temple. As we focus our attention toward this temple in worship of you, we ask God that you have your eyes always here so that when we pray to you facing this temple, you will hear and you will forgive. That's the point of the temple. It's the place where God and his people can meet in some real significant sense. Even though his people are fallen and sinful, and even though God is holy and perfect, he has established the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all that goes along with it so that his people can draw near to him and in a real sense he can dwell in their midst 
and they can worship him and they can pray to him and know that he is with them and that he hears. But as we have said over and over and over and over again, God has superseded the temple by sending his own son in the flesh, God himself dwelling among us. Jesus said that he was the temple. He spoke of the temple of his body in John chapter two, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. He's the fulfillment of the temple. And now that he has gone into heaven where he is seated at God's right hand, where's the temple? God has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of believers. That's why 1 Corinthians says that we are the temple. Believers, the church, we are the temple of the living God because God himself is now dwelling in us. And so we shouldn't be surprised to hear Jesus say to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, where the temple was, will you worship the Father. You're not going to go to either of those places for worship because worship is no longer going to be designated by a place. You don't have to face a certain direction when you pray. You don't have to be in a certain building to pray. You don't have to come to a church building to pray. Why? Because the Spirit of God Himself is dwelling in you. And because in Christ, by the Spirit, you are you and we who are Christians, right? we are being uh, built into God's dwelling place. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 2, verse 22. He says, in Him that is in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, a temple, a tabernacle for God by the Spirit. And a few lines earlier, Paul said, for through Him that is through Christ, we both have access, Jews and Gentiles, in one spirit to the Father. We don't need a building to have access to the Father because we have access to the Father through the Spirit of God Himself. Praise God.